Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. ABE in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Kim Droves, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining us. The PBS two-part series, The Black Church, This Is Our Story, This Is Our Song, was released to critical acclaim earlier this year. Coming up, we'll listen back to our interview with director and producer Shayla Harris and learn the immeasurable historic importance of the Black Church beyond its role as a spiritual home. But first, NPR's Invisibilia podcast has a long history of sharing stories that might have otherwise passed us by. Since 2015, they've been diving into the hidden forces that control human behavior, and they tend to go deep, really getting into the psychology behind what we do. Their recent episode, The Great Narrative Escape, focused on Norwegian slow TV, something I never thought I cared about and now cannot (laughs) stop thinking about. Invisibilia producer Abby Wendell is largely responsible for that intriguing episode, and she joins us now via Zoom. Abby, welcome to City Lights. Thanks so much for having me. That That is a hilarious introduction. I feel like several people have said that to me. I'm pretty sure my dad actually sent a spam email out to all of his friends, like, you won't care about this. You really will not care about this, um, except it actually is kind of interesting if you can make it. It really is, and it sticks with you. Before we go too far down the slow TV rabbit hole, I would love for you to share a little bit about your background. How long have you been with Invisibilia? I think it's it's like coming up on six years. I think in January will be, yeah, six years. And is it true that you have a history as a farm reporter? It is true. You did some research. (laughs) I like got my start in, um, well, I was an intern on Radio Lab like eons ago. And then I I went out to Oklahoma and I helped establish a, a podcast that was part of a larger multimedia organization called This Land press. And then from there, I buried myself in a cornfield in super rural (laughs) Illinois and did some straight agriculture reporting, which was fascinating. That's really interesting. I'm sure that it ends up touching agriculture on more aspects of our life than we would probably think. Yeah. So it was for public radio stations throughout the Midwest. And oftentimes our our pieces would go up to national public radio. It wasn't just for farmers. You had to figure out a way to make people just aware of where their food comes from and how that ties into the environment and the economy. and, And I often did sort of cultural stories, too. One of my, I think, probably more popular pieces was about harvest time karaoke or something like that. And it was all of the sounds associated with harvesting a big corn and soybean crop. There was like a lot of farmers swearing because they would have equipment break. And a lot of the younger farmers would do Snapchat karaoke. That's what it was. As they were in their combines harvesting the crop, they would send there are other like young farmer friends, Snapchats of like singing some of their favorite country songs back and forth to each other, <laughs> which was just, you know, just so charming. And I, I feel like a side of farming that you don't probably ever think about or see. No doubt. That's incredibly charming. And thank you for sharing that with yeah. us. So now you are at Invisibilia. I'm sure that you've put a lot of time and effort into many an episode, but this one, this just (laughs) sounds like something that you just went after and dug in. So I guess a good place for us to start would be, could you please share what slow TV is? 
So Norwegian Slow TV is basically programming that goes on for hours and hours and hours and hours, and sometimes even days. Um, and I think actually there have been broadcasts that have actually gone on for longer than a week. Um, it's uninterrupted by commercials or breaking news. And it's video of really mundane activities. So the first couple of programs that they broadcast were of train journeys across Norway. And then they had the radical inspiration to do a journey on a coastal ferry that takes, I think, five days to travel up the coast of Norway. They've done things like knitting and fishing. And there was a beautiful one of a reindeer herd sort of migration. We use boring as a compliment. Mm. This is Thomas Hellem, the Norwegian television producer who developed Slow TV. Is it supposed to be boring? Uh, no, I wouldn't say boring because, <laughs> because it, it's not boring boring. It's just that everything is there. It's hard to kind of have a succinct definition, but I just kind of explain it by example. So when you're watching a train ride or a boat ride or something like that, there's no action happening. There's there's no narrative, as you explain in the episodes. So is it the lack of narrative that drew you into slow TV? Yeah. And I had heard about slow TV and just was like, that's funny and that's interesting. And I pitched it kind of as a joke in response to one of our hosts asking for a boring story that people would still listen to through through the end. And I was like, oh, well, like slow TV totally accomplished that in Norway. I was pitching very serious stories that I wanted to cover. <laughs> and and so I just kind of threw that in there to give us a moment of laughter and levity in our pitch meeting. More than anything, <laughs> I did not think that it would get greenlit at all. But the reason that I kind of ran with it in the way that I did once it got greenlit is because this is a topic and an area that I have been interested in ever since I got started in journalism. And it's kind of like a roundabout way to explain it. But are you familiar with John Cage at all? Yes, I am. But would you mind sharing for the unfamiliar? He's an American composer, music theorist. He gave lectures. Those got turned into some books. He's probably best known for a piece called 433, which he performed, I think, first in like the 1950s, where he basically walked out onto the concert stage, sat down at the piano, lifted the lid to the keys, and then did nothing for four minutes and 33 seconds. And then I believe he closes the piano key covering and then just kind of like walks off. And that's the <laughs> musical performance. And it's this brilliant way to sort of challenge the idea of what is music, because what happens is people... They're, they're not getting what they were expecting to get. And as a result of that, they're like paying attention to all of the things that are, are not what they were expecting. And there's this really pronounced discomfort going on and all of the noises and stuff that you hear in the audience coughing and clearing their throat and <laughs> probably groaning a little bit and maybe some grumbling about like what is going on here. And in a way that becomes the piece of music. And so like, I'm not a musical theorist. I can't even come a tune probably to save my life. <laughs> and I'm not a historian or anything like that. So in absorbing John Cage content and content about John Cage, I have taken away the idea that one of the things that he was doing was playing around with control and agency, like the composer trying to take control away from himself of sort of like controlling how the music is going to go. And that idea of not trying to necessarily be totally in control of the message and giving some of that agency and freedom back to the audience to have an experience and then determine for themselves what it means or what they take away from it. I've always found it to be just a very generous 
as a maker of things, just a very generous mm. way to think about your work and also who you're making your work for and giving the audience the benefit of the doubt that they can think for themselves, you know? Um, that you don't have to sort right. of shove meaning down their throat for them. And how can we make media that engages that kind of individual thinking in the audience is always something that I've been really interested in. And so for me, slow TV seemed to be playing around in that space. Yeah, in the episode, it was kind of framed around the question of, well, is slow TV art then? Mm. And I found that, well, is it question going through my mind a lot? And it seemed easier and easier to start to define slow TV by what it's not. Mm. It's not exactly art. And it's not exactly ASMR or something like that, or something that you would watch on YouTube. There's something very specific about it. It's very much so. When I interviewed Thomas Hellem, he was very clear about slow TV is not art. And, you know, he said it's not something to kind of put you to sleep. So it's not like a meditation app or something like that. He was adamant that it was storytelling. You know, I watched slow TV with like loads and loads and loads of people. And I would always ask them, do you think that this is storytelling? All right. Slow TV. Slow TV. Watch the start here. I'm watching a man in a fish hat reel in his line. I always want to watch reindeer. Wait, hold up. <laughs> this is hour 11. How do I get to number three? 54. <laughs> he's, he's still reeling. See, I'm already, my American impatience is showing. How am I supposed to feel? And the sort of answer that I got again and again and again was it elicits the impulse to kind of create a story from it in the person who's mm. watching it, right? So it's, it's not so much that it's telling me a story, but it's allowing me to kind of come up with all kinds of stories in my head as I'm watching it. So the experience of it is very much like a narrative experience, even though slow TV itself is what some people might call weak narrativity. In literary theory circles, they don't necessarily think that something either is or isn't a story in the way that a journalist potentially might. And there's this one narratologist that I interviewed who talked about the idea that narrativity can kind of exist on a spectrum from like weak to high narrativity, which is basically just how much plot does it have? Are there characters? Is there like dialogue that is engaging me? Sort of the bones of a story that kind of help us understand what's going on and like following the plot forward. There's, you know, a point of conflict and then there's like resolution, that kind of thing. This is Josh Cohen. He's a psychoanalyst and a professor of literary theory at Goldsmiths University of London. Traditional forms of narrative keep you locked into what they want to tell you. What a weak narrative does is it hands your mind back to you. I sort of think about the way in a spare moment with nothing in particular to do, people distractedly click the lock code on their phone and then they stare at it and then they don't quite know why they've done what they've done. They don't quite know what they're looking at their phone for. They just want a point of orientation, a point of focus. It, slow TV might be a kind of apprenticeship in looking without that kind of immediate focus, in saying, okay, what, what would it be like to look ahead and ask myself what it is I'm interested in, rather than have it assumed for me, have it fed to me? The experience of slow TV, as you're watching it, lots of people tend to find characters or they start to have a memory in their own mind of a story from their own life. Yeah. And I loved your use of the word agency earlier, because that is what it gives all of us when it takes away that firm tail and we can just see what passes by. If you're just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes, and I'm speaking with Abby Wendell of the NPR podcast Invisibilia about, of all things, Norwegian slow TV. When it was broadcast on Norwegian TV originally, yeah. 
something happened within the community, right? Yeah. And it became a national event. Yeah, so they did. They broadcast it live and they advertised when it was going to be airing. And the first one that they did was the train ride. And Thomas, the, the creator, told me that people, they would hear about it and be like at the bar with their friends. And they'd be like, I think I have to go home and like turn on this train ride thing. I'm super <laughs> curious about what that is. And for whatever reason, like the first time that they broadcast it, social media just kind of lit up in Norway talking about this train ride. There was this one man who tweeted that at the end of the seven hour train ride, he stood up and he went to grab his luggage and he knocked his curtain rod down because he was standing in his living room and he had completely disassociated and like thought he was on the train. Um, but <laughs> When did he pack a bag? <laughs> yeah, exactly. When they broadcast the boat trip live, they said for the first like 50 hours or something. So for the first like two days, you know, it was pretty boring. <laughs> and I'm not sure what like gauge they're using there. But then the Norwegians sort of realized that they could go down to the docks and that they would be on live television. And so they started showing up like by the hundreds. And I think Thomas even said like by the thousands by the end of it. In port areas where the boat was planning on going? Exactly. Like within the they, would, they would be able to look at the television sort of schedule of when the boat would be where. And they would go down to the dock when it was coming into their port. And they would throw these like huge port parties. And he said it was almost like they were having a competition to see who could have the biggest port party from port to port. And they would, you know, there were like musicians that would come down and perform. I saw there was like a group of female break dancers that performed. There were some oh. like local politicians that tried to like give stump speeches. Lots of families and like little kids with signs. There was one little boy who I think had a sign that said, I'm sorry, I'm going to be late for school tomorrow because I'm like staying up late and I'm here at the port. And his teacher gave him a pass the next day because she had seen him on TV. <laughs> like that was an acceptable note. <laughs> that type of spontaneous human interaction, that's genuinely some of the biggest stuff in life to me. That gives me goosebumps that that many people could get behind something that abstract and end up making their own art alongside of it. That's really beautiful. Yeah, it was like a really successful, like astonishingly successful public art. What people were celebrating in part, at least from my perspective as an American, was just the beauty of the natural world. And like, what an amazing thing to be on the face of the planet. It's yeah. so simple, but it's just this moment to just be like, wow, look at this place that we inhabit together. And look how magical that is. And at one point, they like turned a corner in the fjord. The coastal of Lofoten. You just see this like emerald green mountain kind of rise out of these dark gray waters. And there was this rainbow just perfectly arcing down over the top of this mountain. You can't plan for it. <laughs> you can't make it happen. It just happened. And of course, this was, this was live. So Twitter, Facebook and everything was kind of boiling with ovations about our beautiful countries. And did you see that? Did you see the rainbow? I think because it's so pared down, there isn't like a huge narrative arc. These smaller, quieter moments. I remember there was one moment along the shoreline, there were these women who had witches hats on and they were like dancing around a fire. <laughs> and I okay. was like, I'd be down to join that coven if that's what that is. <laughs> it's just like these like weird little things sort of pop up and play and like play with you and like entice you and like different things attract different people in different ways. Thinking of those women dancing on the side and you're like, yep, those are my people. That's the type of stuff that happens when you travel. You know, yeah. you get to meet people that you would have never expected to meet before. And sometimes you find your coven and sometimes you yeah. don't. But something like this would have been a great outlet yeah. to give people that connection. Again. Yeah. And it, it helps you experience parts of yourself. I mean, this is a big part of Invisibilia, right? But like interacting with people who see you differently helps you sort of experience yourself as a different 
part of yourself than you might reduce yourself to sometimes, you know, it helps you like grow and revitalizes your imagination for who you are and who you can be. Very well said. There's some time spent in the episode with some academics explaining why they thought slow TV worked in Norway and why it wouldn't work in America. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So like an obvious question when you're working on a story on this story is just like, yeah, okay, fine. It worked in Norway. Who really knows why? But like it definitely would never work in America. That would just never, ever, ever happen. And I never quite understood that response. I was always sort of like, well, I don't know. I mean, I feel like we haven't given ourselves a shot to see. And I interviewed Eric Deggins, who is a television critic for NPR. I don't see any indication in the consumer behavior that I'm watching that people have this yearning for three hours of train tracks winding in front of them. What we're seeing in media is consumers wanting uh, media that is more complex and involved, you know, um, shows that are on like HBO Max and Netflix and, you know, Apple TV Plus and all these new streamers. I had a delightful watching experience with Eric, but he was just like, there's no way. The way that our content is being produced for us, the audience just has so much power in their demand for what they want. And that is kind of shaping what is being produced. And if you look at what is being produced, it's kind of a reflection of what we want. And and that is just like more intense plots and like, mm -hmm. you know, basically Hollywood style drama and cinematography and special effects. But we want that like not just when we go to the movie theater, like we want that on all of our streaming apps. So we want TV to basically be more like the movies. Everything is kind of moving in that sort of faster cuts and more complicated storylines. And but, but then when I talked to some researchers, some psychologists and a, a neuroscientist, they were sort of skeptical that it wouldn't be possible for us to have another kind of appetite. And from their perspective, there just isn't enough research to support that idea. Here's John Eastwood, a psychology professor at York University in Toronto. You know, there's lots of claims about about the media destroying our attention spans and all that kind of thing. When you look a little deeper, I, I just think these are hard claims to make. I think a lot of them resonate with us intuitively. They, they seem plausible, um, but I'm not aware of uh, research that gets at exactly that question. And I think if you look at YouTube or even it would be interesting to look at the narrativity of TikTok or something, you know what I mean? Like these sort of mm -hmm. different media experiences that people have an appetite for that are like not traditional narratives and how engaged people are with that, that like it makes me feel there definitely could be an appetite. But the kind of nail in the coffin in the United States when it comes to like, could slow TV work here? It's less about like our appetite for it and more about the sort of structure of how media works in America, which is basically money. Yeah, money. You just right. have to have commercials. And if you have commercials, then it makes the experience of watching slow TV not quite the same. There was a show called Railroad Alaska on part of the Discovery Network. And they did a slow TV sort of-esque episode where they just had a camera mounted on the front of the railroad in Alaska. And they just broadcast that, I think, for five hours. But it was like every 15 minutes, it was interrupted by, you know, the Geico Gecko or whatever. <laughs> the I talked to the producer of that program, actually, and he was like, you know, the number one comment on Twitter was this would be a lot better without commercials. People liked it. They were engaged, but they were just like, why? Like, this kind of breaks the experience, you know? <laughs> like, this just kind of right. ruins the vibe a bit. And yeah, so, you know, like, capitalism is ruining the vibe, y'all. <laughs> right. I guess the answer is that their public media is funded a lot better than ours. Yes. I mean, the public media in Norway is, I think it's not only that it's better funded, but also part of the mandate that the public media there has is an obligation to try to do things that are not going to be commercially successful because stations in the country that are 
guided by commercial success are never going to be able to do that. And so they see it as a public duty to try and create the things that are not going to be monetarily successful, you know, because everything that exists should not just be like guided by whether or not it's going to be profitable. And so they see it as like a public good to sort of experiment and try things that might not be commercially successful. And I, for one, working for public media in America, you know, would love to take that a little bit from the Norwegians. You know, obviously, diversity of voices and diversity of perspectives is a big thing that's being talked about right now, as it should be. But another conversation that I would like to see us having is diversity of, of format. So, you know, let's go NPR. Let's fund some American slow radio. Abby Wendell of the NPR podcast Invisibilia. Wendell recently dove even deeper into slow media, and she created an episode of American Slow Radio. You can hear her avant-garde Invisibilia episode wherever you normally listen to podcasts. We'll also have a link on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Special thanks to the Invisibilia team for letting us incorporate some clips from their slow TV episode into our conversation with Abby Wendell. Coming up, Shayla Harris, the director behind the PBS series, The Black Church. This is our story. This is our song. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Welcome back to City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. The Black Church, This Is Our Story, This Is Our Song is a moving two-part series from executive producer, host, and writer Henry Louis Gates Jr. When the series premiered on PBS back in February, the show's director, Shayla Harris, joined City Lights host Lois Reitzes via Zoom. Here, Harris begins their conversation by explaining how the series illustrates the role of the Black Church beyond its importance as a spiritual home. Well, from the moment that Black people arrived on these shores, the Black church as an institution, whether that's in the form of hush harbors, which are these spaces in forests that that slaves snuck off to to convene together um, to uh, the sort of iconic churches that we ended up visiting in the series, like Ebenezer Baptist Church, which was the home of Martin Luther King. The Black church has been the center of the community that provided not just the spiritual center, but also at a time when the community wasn't free, it offered political space, it offered economic space, it offered a cultural space for people to create community and build what we kind of stated in the the second episode was a nation within a nation. It, It was the first home of education. So some of the earliest HBCUs, some of whom we know today, like Spelman, grew out of church basements. It was the first place of political engagement where people came together. And after Reconstruction, a number of the first Black politicians were actually ministers and preachers. And certainly when we think about the cultural expression within the Black community, the music, spirituals, gospel, all of that emerged out of this really iconic institution. Hmm. The very phrase, the Black church, suggests a single entity. African-American Christians historically and today are not monolithic. How is that demonstrated in this series? And that's a really important point. The Black church is not a monolith. In fact, a lot of the early Christians who came over from Africa had some of their faith practices that they brought with them, including Islam, which was integrated into a new form of Christianity that the slaves developed. And, you know, over time, uh, a number of denominations and a number of different kinds of fracturing of that Christianity that appealed to a lot of different people started to emerge. You know, you have Black Methodists, you have Black Baptists, you even have Black Catholics like myself. And so as the community grew and and needed different things, the faith spectrum (laughs) expanded. Hmm. 
before enslaved people in America, Christianity was the religion of the oppressor. How does this series show the ways in which black people adapted African beliefs, honored the ancestors, and translated them into a form of Christianity that reflected themselves? Well, that's an incredible part of our exploration. And one of the really uh, illuminating things that we learned in the series was that some of the early Christians did bring their faith practices from Africa. Some of that included Islam, in fact. And we visited a church that included writings and, and symbols that reflected that tradition. The early Africans saw in that book the story of Exodus and saw a parallel with their own experience and, in fact, transposed themselves into that story and that narrative. And so we see even in the you know 1800s where people are talking about God is a Negro, God is Black. Uh, that story of their oppression is reflected in the narrative and, and that, you know, it continued to emerge even in the 20th century where there was these iconographies of a Black Jesus. And so what the Black Christians did was sort of take that story and use it to help with their survival, help with their political engagement, and transformed what would have been a slave religion into something really incredibly powerful being told by Southern white Baptist preachers that they weren't really worthy of Christianity in the sense that the Southern Baptists embraced it. I can only imagine the fortitude it took to maintain those beliefs. Yeah, I mean, it show, really shows the power of faith and, and what it can do for people to, to help them survive such sort of emotional degradation and physical oppression. And, you know, it really reflects the belief, the strong belief um, that those early Christians had in a loving God and a forgiving God and a, a God that could help them free them from from bondage. And, you know, I think that sort of belief and that faith and that commitment and that dedication is something that's really infused into the fabric of the church and why it has had such a powerful history for all of these 400 years. Would you talk about Henry McNeil Turner? Yeah, so Henry McNeil Turner was a, is a fascinating character who started out as a, a chaplain during the Civil War, preaching to um, some of the Black soldiers who had joined the Union effort to, to free the slaves. You know, he became a really powerful bishop in the AME Church, which is one of the, the earliest and first Black denominations uh, that was created uh, in the Americas. And, you know, he helped spread the gospel of the AME Church, building churches all across the South in Georgia, uh, where he came from, and, you know, became sort of, you know, his sort of arc is the arc of um, Black Christianity in the 1800s. Um, he he eventually coins the term God is a Negro, which is this notion that God is of the oppressed and God reflects the Black community and understands their story and sees their story uh, as his own and eventually passes on as a, a really influential and powerful religious figure in the Black community. The documentary is in two parts, a total of four hours I can only imagine how daunting it was to whittle it down to that. Would you talk about the division into sections and chapters? Yeah, so as you can imagine, 400 years of history is an overwhelming task, and certainly there's a number of stories that we weren't able to include, but we felt like it was important to, to break down the story in a, in a couple different ways. We started with the Atlantic slave trade, which is the beginning of the, the Black presence in the Americas, and that was a way of exploring what life was like under slavery and how those early Black Christians adapted and evolved the Bible of the 
enslavers to something that was really powerful for themselves to help them survive this oppression. The second chapter moves to emancipation and, and what freedom, freedom brought and how that evolved in the development of the independent institution of the church that helped provide economically, educationally, socially, as well as spiritually for a community that was emerging from bondage and sort of finding its way in the world. And as that institution developed, we moved to the third hour, which is, I think, a period that a lot of people know about, which is uh, the emergence of the church and its really prominent role in the civil rights movement and in sort of transforming the American political landscape. But we also use that episode to talk about this sort of really powerful cultural dominance that the Black church sort of develops in and around gospel music and making that accessible both through race records and the radio and um, in all kinds of technological ways. And the final chapter, episode four, looks at the, the life in the church after the civil rights movement, when the church is sort of at a crossroads about what it means to the community and how it starts to explore and fracture in a lot of political and social ways and trying to find its space and, and, and what it continues to mean for a community that has a lot of different needs at that time. So, you know, it's, I think it's really going to be fascinating for people to learn about that particular moment in the, the Black church's history. And, you know, we really hope that at the end of this, people take away that as the community has grown and developed, the Black church has reflected those needs. As with other PBS series, the educational outreach, the suggested readings, where to go for more information, I know that this series will spark a tremendous amount of interest in those materials. The documentary subtitle is Our Story, Our Song. Would you talk about the significance of music in the Black church? Yes, uh, music is part and parcel of the story and fabric of the, of the Black church. The subtitle, This Is Our Story, This Is Our Song, comes from a really popular hymn, Blessed Assurance, that we basically had every gospel singer that we uh, interviewed sing to us. And uh, so there's a lot of interesting renditions floating around in our archive tape. But music is is there from the very beginning um, when you talk about spirituals during slavery and the power and the significance that those songs had, the messages that they transmitted. It was there from the very beginning. And then you have things like gospel that with choirs and records that people could certainly play at home and you have you know really incredible performers like Mahalia Jackson, who, if you haven't heard her, like, you know, run out and, and get it right away because her voice just reaches into the, the depths of your soul. Music conveys a lot of things. It conveys the pain of some of the experiences of the Black community in America, but it also connotes a, a spirit of overcoming and triumph. And so the music uh, reflects both of those things, and, and that's why I think it's such a powerful thread in our series. Oh, it is stunning. If I could be personal for a moment, when I was a little girl growing up in Chicago, there used to be a show that Mahalia Jackson had before the so-called prime time, I guess, daytime programming would come on. I think it was 
6.30 on a Saturday morning, and I loved to watch her. I just felt transfixed. And I knew nothing about her, about the connection, about what she was singing. And the part in this series where you address the Edwin Hawkins singers of Oakland, how their recording of Oh Happy Day became a hit, and the tension between Saturday night and Sunday morning just resonated so beautifully because this love of God and the dominance of faith can't be removed from the singing, can it? I mean, how could anyone believe that that's profane? Yeah. No, it's a it's an incredible question. And that was uh, certainly a tension within the church about whether that music, that spiritual music, that powerful music that, you know, in a lot, a lot of people's belief is God's message only belongs within the confines of the church or if God's message needs to be spread to uh, you know, people outside of the church who may not actually um, come into those four walls and that, you know, a song like Oh Happy Day, which is like, uh, you know, a beautiful, joyous expression of that belief, you know, was played on the radio and, you know, got a Grammy and, and reached audiences beyond the church's four walls, which in some ways is a kind of evangelical work to kind of spread the, the good news. So there was that tension within the church about, you know, Saturday nights and Sunday morning and, you know, you know, whether those uh, things could be reconciled in a way. But, you know, what we discovered in the series is that that tension between those two things created this really powerful music. You think about gospel and how, you know, the early gospel from Thomas Dorsey and Mahalia Jackson was influenced by the blues, the great music and how there is this kind of cross-pollination uh, between the sort of sacred and the and the secular which is you know the story of <laughs> the story of life is that tension between the sacred and the secular director shayla harris speaking with city lights host lois reitzis we'll return to more of their conversation in just a moment you're tuned to wabe atlanta Welcome back to City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Droves, in for Lois Reitzis. Thank you for listening. If you're just joining us, we've been hearing from director Shayla Harris about the PBS series, The Black Church, This Is Our Story, This Is Our Song. Here, Harris explains the historic attraction to the African-American Episcopal Church. I think some of it is is geographical and, and what's, you know, sort of in the community that, that people were exposed to. But I think for um, a lot of people at the time of the emergence of some of the Black denominations, they wanted to go to a place that was run by people who looked like them, understood their background. It was sort of a for us, by us kind of option. And, you know, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, when it first emerged, really appealed to people for that reason. They felt like that that practice uh, of the Methodist faith in particular was really sensitive to where Black people were coming from. And that's what they wanted to see reflected in their experiences on Sunday and their experiences in in the pews. Um, So I think that accounts for a lot of the appeal and attraction of, of those early denominations. And then you had one of the most preeminent denominations like the Church of God in Christ that emerged at the end of the 18th century, which not only was a for us, by us scenario, but also embraced African traditions, African music, these uh, sort of retentions that had been sort of stamped out of these other denominations. And 
you know, it exploded. Hundreds of millions of people flocked to that denomination and, and really saw themselves in that. And so I think what we found is that Black Christians really wanted to see themselves in their faith practices. And I think that's why uh, they were drawn to some of those early Black denominations. The documentary addresses shortcomings of the Black church regarding homosexuality, abuse, and various social justice movements. I was fascinated by the discussion of Nanny Helen Burroughs. Why was the late 19th century known as the women's era in the Black church? Well, that period is a fascinating period, and Nanny Helen Burroughs is one of the, the most intriguing people that we explored in the series. What what we really found was in that period in the late 1800s, you know, after Reconstruction starts to collapse, um, the Black community really turns inward and, and becomes a, a, you know, a nation within a nation that is trying to figure out how to survive in this country. And um, the women who have always been the backbone of the, the Black church really see this as a pivotal moment to be pushing some of the things they believe are instrumental to um, the uplift of the community, um, not just in terms of education and in terms of economic development, but also social development. So whether that's temperance or making sure women are, are feeling respected when they're out there. And um, if they are working women, that they are earning decent pay and, and not being exploited in those ways. And so she and others like herself really wanted to push the church to be at the forefront of those activities. And when some of them found that the church wasn't as receptive as they had hoped, a lot of them um, started to develop what became known as the club women's movement. So the National Association of Colored Women and, and other organizations like, like that really started to take on those activities sort of within a secular realm. So there are these kinds of competing institutions that are emerging within the Black community to deal with those issues um, when they felt like the church wasn't expansive enough for that idea. In that chapter, we hear about her righteous discontent. Indeed. It, it reminded me of John Lewis and his good trouble. <laughs> That's a great parallel. A great parallel. Just <laughs> brought that to mind. Dr. Henry Louis Gates has been our guide to so much knowledge and richness about Black history. Shayla, can you talk about the personal importance of this series in the canon of his work? Yeah, no, Dr. Gates has been instrumental in sort of shining a light on a lot of history that has been overlooked and hasn't been taken as seriously as, as it should be. And this exploration, I thought, was really profound in, in how personal uh, it was for him. One of the earliest things that we did was went back with him to his family's church that he grew up in and the church that his mom attended in West Virginia. And it, it's one of the most emotional moments that I've ever experienced. And, um, you know, certainly I think our audiences will be moved by that that feeling of coming home, you know, the prodigal son sort of coming home and being embraced by his community and you could go home again, but, you know, despite all of his years uh, away from that place, it was as if he never left. And, you know, I think in some ways that is reflective of the history of the church and the black experience that even, um, you know, even in our contemporary era where a lot of people have drifted away from the church, don't necessarily attend as regularly when things, you know, hit a certain kind of point, the church is the place that people gather. And, you know, I think Dr. Gates saw and felt that personally and felt that that was a really important thing for to, to throw open the, the veil for people to understand how important this institution has been in, in our development in, in America. Oh, <laughs>
Director Shayla Harris speaking with City Lights host Lois Reitzes. The Black Church, This Is Our Story, This Is Our Song, is currently available for streaming on ATL PBA, and you can learn more on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Finally today, one of the top museums in the world, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, also known as the Met, acquired work recently from two Atlanta artists. Don Williams Boyd and Julie Torres are the talented artists who received the exciting news just a few weeks ago. Torres's screen print portrait of the late U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is on view now in the Met's new exhibition, Revolution, Resistance, and Activism. Her portraits are of Ginsburg in her robe, staring straight at the viewer, and her robe is made up of colorful stripes of paper weaved together to form geometric patterns. And along edges of the portrait, you'll find quotes from Ginsburg. Boyd is known for her quilting technique and large-scale textiles. Her work illustrates what it means to be Black in America. The Met acquired her piece, Sankofa, which is semi-autobiographical. The cloth painting references her childhood in Atlanta and her path to becoming an artist. The painting of a nude black woman seems to be floating in water while holding up photographs of Boyd's previous paintings. This will be part of the Met's permanent collection. Congratulations to both Atlanta artists. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about Mint Gallery's new exhibit, Sweet Discord. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find a complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights host and executive producer is Lois Reitzes. Our producer is Summer Evans, and Shelly Canavy is our engineer. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes, and I encourage you to follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.